Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing, and today we're looking very specially at local government, how local government has been dealing with the crisis at a time when national government or even regional government has certainly been coming in for a lot of flack in the way it's dealt with the virus crisis. We're going to see how local politicians deal with it. But first of all, let's mention that Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been outlining the next steps of the virus lockdown. He's also been talking about more funding for the NHS. His plans are going to see the NHS in England get an extra £3 billion of funding to prepare for a possible second wave of the virus. And this all comes, of course, uh, after fears that a second wave this winter could lead to 120,000 deaths in UK hospitals. The Prime Minister is also promising a new target for testing. We'll see capacity increase to half a million virus tests a day by the end of October, beginning of November. Now, interestingly, Boris Johnson's updated roadmap for reopening Britain also includes new lockdown powers locally for councils. The plan's going to allow local authorities to shut pubs and cafes without having to first get the green light from the government. That could also mean bans on weddings and other large gatherings at short notice if that is what's needed. And that's rather good timing for us because what we're going to be looking at today is how councils have dealt with the virus crisis as opposed to the national strategy. And for more, I'm very pleased to say we're joined by two politicians from Camden in North London, Liberal Democrat councillor and former MEP Louisa Porritt, and also the leader of the Conservatives in Camden, Oliver Cooper. So Louisa and Oliver, welcome to both of you. Now this is an interesting moment because we are, as they say, across the aisle, bipartisan, because you guys I think are able to work reasonably well together in dealing with this. Oliver, let me come to you first. How has it worked in terms of what you as a council have been able to do in response to the crisis? Well, I think it's fair to say that local ward councillors, which Louisa and I are, have happily put aside their party affiliations during COVID and within any crisis. You know, I've helped set up a food bank, run a mutual aid organisation with hundreds of volunteers, and every so often people ask me on party political affiliation, but really, really rarely. And when you're on the front line, it doesn't really come into it. Now, at an administration level, council executives, their leaders, their cabinet members, they find it a, a tiny bit harder because council administrations are that much more adversarial, a bit more defensive under that model. So I think that culture probably is, is different in different councils. In Camden, we've had a single committee that's had to look at the whole gamut of the stuff that our £1 billion budget organisation has to do. And that's really been difficult. And it's probably reduced the amount of cross-party working we can do in terms of changing and dictating policy. OK, let me pick that up with, with Louise. I mean, what's been your impression of the way it's worked? Yeah, so, I mean, I would 
say something slightly different, which is that based on what I've heard from Liberal Democrat colleagues around London, at least, um, Camden Council has had uh, a slightly better response and um, a better involvement of other parties, because not only have we had that panel, but in fairness to Camden Council, which it's important to remember is a Labour-run supermajority. I mean, they've got 43 out of 54 councillors. So there's very little representation of other parties. Um, in addition to the panel, there has been uh, cross-party meetings on a fortnightly basis, uh, during a period anyway, that seems to have come to an end now as activity slightly goes back to normal. Uh, there's also been a weekly briefing for all councillors to ask questions about the council's response, uh, which is now fortnightly fortnightly again as mm. activity changes so I've actually found uh, as a Liberal Democrat that there's been more information sharing with opposition parties than in normal times and actually my wish would be that this will continue beyond this crisis because well, the nature of having a supermajority is that the council can effectively do what it likes. Yeah well exactly let me pick up on that if I may with Oliver because what are the relations like with the Labour group in this? Has that worked well? I think it's an individual councillor by councillor basis, and we cooperate with those individual councillors. There's a, a, a fortress under what's called the strong leader cabinet model that Camden and most councils have, whereby that cabinet is sort of ring-fenced from, from the rest of the council and, and, and have more difficult relationships. I do somewhat contest what, what Louisa said. I, I, I have colleagues in, in, in most boroughs in, in London, and whilst in Harrow, in Greenwich, in, in several others, there are daily or multiple times a week calls between leaders of the opposition and other opposition parties and the chief executive. In Camden, we have one group call once a week. It's a very limited amount, but that's completely within the gift of administration because of that legal structure that councils have. So I cooperate very closely with some Labour members that I agree on with certain issues where they've picked up on something. For example, one of the Labour councils in Highgate has pointed out that it's outrageous that there's no remote teaching in our schools and that people from kids in state schools have been left by the wayside. Very few of our colleagues picked it up, and therefore, as a result, I've supported the campaign that, that, that she wanted to run that subject. Yeah. And there are many other examples, but that's rarely with the administration and far more with their backbench yeah. councillors. All right. Well, I mean, we, we've kind of covered, this, if you like, the mechanics of the way this does or doesn't work and the issues to do with it. But I suppose the interesting thing, perhaps, for outsiders is to step back and say, how is this uh, dealing with the crisis that we have and how could it do going forward? Because Boris Johnson has been talking uh, just in the last hour or so uh, about controlling the pandemic through local action, local authorities having new powers. Louisa, do you think that this will make it better for you in, in Camden, easier for you, easier for the authority as a whole to be able to deal with the virus? Well, my understanding of uh, the latest announcement is that that's going to be about um, controlling local outbreaks of the virus. That's not every aspect of how councils need to respond to the virus. And actually, the, one of the really key questions is where is the funding going to come from on immediate long-term basis? Because councils were under huge financial pressure before coronavirus hit and now they've all rightly spent a lot of money trying to support residents 
and businesses and the voluntary sector through this crisis. Um, but it's already the case that certainly here in Camden, the council has spent more than the government has currently promised. But at the outset of the crisis, the government had said that in good faith that that money would be returned to local councils. So I think, right. you know, the challenges uh, for the Conservative government to keep their word well, on that. Well, let me pick up then with Oliver. Obviously, you're a Conservative, Oliver. Um, is this, I mean, we know Boris Johnson is putting these ideas forward. Louisa says, good, but you need the money. You've already spent a lot of money, of course, in Camden on this. Does the money need to follow this, this, these new powers? Clearly, money needs to follow responsible use of those powers, but it would be irresponsible to just write a blank cheque. I understand opposition parties always just want to write a blank cheque, always want to just say, well, we wouldn't do anything differently, but we'd do it better, which is what the opposition parties have done, have done nationally. But you're right, if extra powers are given to local councils, then additional money has to be given to them as well, commensurate to those powers. So if we're talking about their ability to order a local lockdown, close down pubs, change licensing conditions, open and close schools at a drop of a hat, that sort of thing, then there will be a small amount of additional expenditure. But also what's vitally important is those powers are done through consultation with local residents and local representatives, groups, schools themselves, pubs, etc., to make sure they're used responsibly. And that's the key thing, because local government doesn't always do everything responsibly. Yeah, and then let me pick up on another point, I think, that, that is, is going to be in a lot of people's minds, which is, OK, we talk about localism, and I know the Liberal Democrats are big on that, of course, um, but Indeed. the point was made in the Leicester situation that there was an element of absurdity, because where did Leicester begin and finish? You could say there was a border, I suppose, in terms of the council area, but people could move freely across it. To what extent does it make sense to actually impose, for example, lockdowns on an area that's so close to somewhere else and there's a lot of throughput? Yeah, well, I think you've absolutely highlighted the problem there, which is that you can only control it to an extent through have to see as things pan out, whether it's feasible to, for example, just lock down a school and that that then won't have other uh, ramifications for other parts um, of the local area and beyond. But the Leicester example is interesting because actually the, the main reason why that happened is the council wasn't kept informed by Public Health England about the data. So they didn't have a yeah. true picture of how the outbreak was evolving. And if they had done earlier, then actually a, a lockdown of the whole city wouldn't then necessarily right. have been needed. Whereas well, here in Camden, and I think across London, we were getting that pillar two data and are continuing to. Well, so me, that uh, makes a big difference. Yeah, let me pick up with Oliver on that one, because there is that issue. I mean, you know, people come from Kentish Town, people come from, I know, Clapham, even into your part of the world. It can't, you can't seal it, can you? No, exactly. And you know, London has got 33 local authorities, and there are many local authorities are just outside the outskirts of London. They're effectively within it its orbit. And that's why local government has to work hand in glove with national government and regional government in the case of, of London to make sure there is a seamless um, approach to, to, to local government. And there has been suggestions in, in Leicester um, and with Oadby and Wixton, which is a local authority next to Leicester, um, that the boundaries have been set arbitrarily because they don't yeah. exactly match um, the local authority boundaries. Of course, that that belies um, an ignorance of actually what we're dealing with, because the yeah. virus is not going to respect local authority boundaries. And if we want to save lives, we need to respect that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Boris Johnson has been talking about new ways forward in dealing, of course, with the crisis. What the Prime Minister's been talking about really is localism finding a way to ensure that local authorities perhaps take the burden of perhaps imposing local lockdowns where it becomes necessary. And we just heard, of course, from two councillors in Camden in North London about what opportunities that might give them and indeed how they've managed so far, sometimes working across the aisle in a bipartisan way to try to help their regions deal with the crisis. Well, I'm very pleased to say that on this special looking at local government and how it's working, where we're focusing on the different approaches to the virus crisis across England, uh, I'm pleased to be able to be joined by Councillor Marianne Overton, who's Vice Chair of the Local Government Association. Marianne, welcome to the programme. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. We've just been hearing about uh, Boris Johnson's plans, looking at ways in which more power in terms of, of local arrangements can be made in dealing with crisis, uh, with a virus crisis outbreaks. First of all, do you welcome that? Is that, is that what you'd like to see? Yes, I think it's very important because the local councils are in touch with their communities. They understand the issues on the ground. So, for example, if there's a particular factory or a particular street, Uh, They've got the information and they'll understand what's needed. And that's why these things work so well locally. Um, We've had the national lockdown, but it would be extremely difficult to do something like that again. And and it would be unwieldy if we were trying to solve a localised problem. So I think it's absolutely right to deal with this in a localised way and to make sure that the councils have the adequate funding and resources to make that work effectively on the ground. Well, let me pick up on the the funding problem, because that's a perennial, of course, when everyone talks Mm. uh, about local government. So far, uh, our local authorities that you're hearing from, have they been able, have they had the resources to deal with what they've been asked so far? So far, the councils have done magnificently, and they have had funding towards the cost of COVID. And now we've got a promise towards of funding for the loss of income that councils have suffered. You know, like businesses, councils have also suffered uh, lost income with leisure centres, car parking and so on. And so that's been an additional issue. The government has not agreed to cover that all. They've agreed to cover part of that. So there will be a shortfall. So uh, to date, I think the councils have done fantastically well. But there are some that are at the point now where they're really wondering whether they can, uh, how to make uh, ends meet, how to see how they're going to make ends meet in the future, particularly if there was a second wave or a, a um, or any other problem that is an additional cost, you know, that we've had flooding and so on in the past as well. So, you know, this is one disaster which we're throwing 
everything we can at to make it, it to make it you know to keep people safe and make the recovery successful. What, what are the key areas where where, where money where money is a problem? I mean, what what are the big spenders that the councils have to think about? The council has spent uh, considerable sums on making sure that there's extra work in supporting the uh, um, people. So we've got a lot of people who are vulnerable, and the the government did support some directly, but the councils have had to go and make sure they have identified all of those individuals one by one, contacted them, make sure their needs are provided for. So it might be additional care, it might be uh, some further supplies uh, arrangements. So that kind of very detailed work one by one, and that's been quite, you know, that's been really significant for our councils, and they've done terrifically. So a lot of extra care, a lot of making sure that staff are safe and that we've got uh, adequate uh, protection and also backup staff uh, for when, you know, if anybody's ill. Are are councils going into debt uh, in considerable? We've heard, at least I've heard anecdotally, some councils reaching almost to the point of bankruptcy because of the demands on them, in addition to the position they were already in before. Exactly, exactly. They, they, we had a nine, had years of austerity beforehand, so the councils had already been cutting their cloth very, very tightly. And as people will know, they've even had to lose some services. And that was where we started, with going into this. So for some councils in particular, it's been extremely hard hit. And uh, others less so, but um, you know certainly coping. Are, are you hearing of bankruptcies around the corner? Are you being told that? Sorry, uh, bankruptcy around the corner. It's, uh, certainly, uh, some councils have said that they may that their finance officers may need to declare that they cannot see how they can make ends meet, and the government has asked them not to declare, but to go first to the government and see if a resolution can be made. So that's the current situation. That, that's really interesting, and, and, and that is actually happening. That's working at the moment. Uh, yes, we've not had any um, declarations mm. at the moment, I don't think. Right, but obviously <laughs> but it's a dangerous situation. The... Marianne, let me ask you about something else which is really interesting. And We had an example in the previous part of the programme where we had a Liberal Democrat and a Conservative councillor from the same council, uh, not completely on the same page, but not far off. Has there been a lot of uh, what we might call bipartisanship in this crisis that perhaps there wasn't before? Yes, actually, I think there has. Um, I, I am independent, um, so I don't go into any of those. Um, but I, and I lead the independent group, so we have a number of smaller parties in our group as well. And I have to say, um, certainly in local government, we've had terrific cross-party working in uh, a number of councils, and certainly nationally in a big way, um, I'm endlessly impressed at how the cross-party working is so effective in local government on a national level. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly focused on getting the best outcomes for our councils and our residents, and uh, we all work together for that common goal. Well, that's interesting. I mean, in somewhat in contrast, I imagine, to further up the uh, political chain. <laughs> That's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're glad it isn't. Um, I suppose, though, that there is an issue here because in terms of direction, in terms of where people want to go politically, those who are, and I take on board that you are not party political, um, you know, there, are, there are differences of outlook, differences of aim. I mean, it's very hard to reconcile, surely. I think the significant point about the aim, uh, you know, obviously we all want people healthy, well, and we want a good recovery. 
the how one does that is um, important. You know, we've got to make sure that the adequate funding's there, that our businesses are supported, and that we can make sure that the there is a, a green infrastructure that's growing. So that we're we're very keen, to, we're all very keen in, in the government cross party to make sure that the recovery is economically successful, community successful, and also environmentally successful. We have to remember that we had before we started this COVID, we've got two big underlying uh, issues already, two big changes, and that is the digitalisation, but especially mm. also the um, issue of the uh, environment. And those those are still there. You know, those issues yeah. have not gone away. So we need to make sure that our businesses, our communities and our environment all succeed in good health. Indeed. Indeed, but of course, the thing at the moment, as you as we all know, is, of course, the virus crisis. And what has been pointed out, and we, we did uh, talk uh, last week on Bloomberg Westminster about Leicester, the situation there and the lockdown, the there can be an absurdity because if you do things on a local level, and, and you are by nature, I guess, a localist, um, the virus doesn't observe boundaries. It didn't observe the boundaries between the outer parts of the city of Leicester and the rest of Leicestershire. It clearly doesn't respect boundaries in many cases. Does it even make sense to deal with this on a local level? It's, there are boundaries within an area. You know, if you're thinking about closing a, a factory, for example, or a school, or um, any of these things, and then you've got to do the track and trace. Um, so, and that's where you you seek out those people who have crossed boundaries and then to uh, ask them to go into uh, isolation. So it is through, uh, it, you can do it. on a, It certainly does work on a local level. So long but do you as, even know where the boundaries are? I mean, I would say myself, Marianne, that here, I don't, where I live, I'm not sure where the boundary between one council and the next is. Well, it's not that you wouldn't necessarily do it on a council boundary. You would do it on a, a, wherever the problem was. So the problem might be in a factory, it might be in a school, it might be in a street, it might be in a town. So you wouldn't necessarily do it on a um, on a hold on a bound on a council boundary. But more important is that you've got the test and trace with it. So you you lock down a particular area, but you must have the testing and the tracing so that you can establish where where else. It's gone out of that boundary. But that so, depends on central government. You, you, track and trace is not something, really, that, that you people on the ground have all the resources to do. It's a national government thing, isn't it? We have some resources. Um, I think it's 300 million given by the government for councils to do it. And you've got to bear in mind that um, our councils have been doing track and trace for a very long time. If you think of uh, health, uh, environmental health that we've been working on, you know, if somebody gets sick in a restaurant, they, they do do a lot of track and trace uh, and they work out where, where the, um, you know, forensically work through what's gone, what's gone on. So certainly we have expertise and we also have uh, some funding and we are working in partnership. Um, we have resilience forums in the uh, in each area where we have all the councils working together with the police and with health and with the fire service in a combined approach so that we're working together in a local area. And that's really about place leadership, making sure that our places are um, strong and secure and all of our public authorities working together for the common aim. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.